I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today we are talking about a very common medical symptom, one of the ones that I dislike most, uh, weakness. You must know a lot of that weakness. I see a lot of weakness. Wait, I must know a lot? (laughs) So you're the expert today. Do you have a case to present? I do indeed. So uh, what do you make of this? I had a patient, 75 years old, who is hospitalized, an obese woman with complaints actually developed in the hospital of weakness. Um, She'd been admitted three days before with fevers and chills. Um, She had a urine at that time that showed pyuria uh, and a lot of white cells. Got it. And um, some back pain and was admitted and diagnosed with pyelonephritis. And on like day three or something, she reports she feels weak and is having trouble getting to the bathroom without help. Okay. Let me start um, when I think about this. And I'm sure some of this is what you were referring to when you said that you hate weakness and probably some of it you'll get to in your five points. I think the first thing to always think about is that most weakness is not weakness, right? Most weakness is every other medical problem that people have. You feel crummy and you feel weak. And so like anybody in the hospital is going to feel weak. And so the very first thing you need to do is sort of prove that there's objective weakness. People who complain of weakness but are not weak, you know, they're suffering, they're miserable, they need to be helped. It's just kind of not what we're talking about here, right? So I don't want to seem like I'm disrespecting people who feel terrible. Um, I learned a million years ago on my neurology rotation at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 1992 that people who actually have true muscle weakness typically complain less that they're like weak, but complain about that they're unable to perform a specific task. Um, I have no idea if there's like data behind that or anything, but I've actually found that very useful in my career. So people say, you know, I have trouble getting up from stairs. I have trouble combing my hair. And this woman, you know, you talk specifically about, I have trouble walking to the bathroom. That makes me think that this is real weakness. Also, because you're presenting to me in a podcast about weakness. So I'm hoping you're not just, you know, torturing me. So um, that's what I'm sort of thinking. I also, when I think about weakness, I, I think about that weakness can kind of come from anywhere. It's almost like when you think about shortness of breath, right, or chest pain. And like, maybe if we talk about chest pain, we talk about chest pain being anywhere, you know, from the skin to the myocardium. Um, When we talk about weakness, it's anywhere from like the motor cortex in the brain, corticospinal tracts, anterior horn cells, spinal nerve roots, peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, muscles, whatever, anything. So you could conceivably do a differential diagnosis that way. I do like that, by the way. I think that's a way to, because there's so many things that can cause neuromuscular weakness, that having that organization that goes from the top all the way to the muscle cell, I think that's absolutely the way to remember it. Yeah, good. 
So in this lady, I'm going to guess that she's got objective weakness. It sounds like she's got lower extremity weakness. It's localized rather than generalized, right? She's not like every muscle is weak. It's her lower extremities are weak. Um, people who have generalized weakness, it's a very short differential. It's like, you know, cachexia, myasthenia gravis, periodic paralysis. I don't know, probably other things. So the next pivotal point, you know, after objective versus not objective, generalized versus localized, is whether it's symmetric or asymmetric. I kind of think that that's not a very helpful pivotal point because there's so much crossover. But so for her, I'd worry that there's either something in her spine, right? And this is a woman who sounds like came in with an infection. There's a real chance she was bacteremic. Maybe she's got a spinal abscess or something, or that she's got a myopathy and you know, just knowing what we do to people in the hospital uh, and iatrogenic myopathy, um, maybe due to electrolyte abnormalities, maybe due to, you know, medications you're giving her, maybe because you took her off her Synthroid when she came in, something like that. I guess that's where I'd start. And my question for you, maybe before you take us through some real detail is, examining this lady, was she objectively weak? Was there something you could sort of Wow, so it was really interesting. Um, this is the late afternoon of day three. It's always the late and, afternoon. Um, I examined her and wasn't really impressed while she was in bed that she was frankly weak. Now, she was a very heavy woman. And so at least to in the bed exam was unremarkable on day three. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't make much of it. Sure. And then on the morning the next day, she said, I'm much worse. Okay. And I'm like, well, I just have to try to walk her then. Yeah. And so I got one of the nurses with me so that if she had a problem, I knew I wouldn't be able to hold her up myself. Yeah. And as she went to stand up, she fell down. She was unable wow. to support her weight. Wow. I, I think I knew this before working with you, but I think I've learned this from you Um you know, specifically is how valuable, you know, just watching people walk is, right? Um, and whether it's as they come into the room or whether it's walking them out to the um, to the waiting room, you just learn so much about not only the medical illnesses, but also like how their life is being affected. Um, and, and that probably points out that, you know, given your neurological exam is probably lousy, but, but, you know, your exam in bed didn't show much. But once you get her up and, you know, she's got a lot of weight on those legs, sounds like she can't do it. Well, yeah. And, and then you can imagine I broke into a full sweat. Sure. <laughs> so I guess at this point, I mean, now I'm really worried that she's got, you know, local weakness of her lower extremities. I think I would like bang on this woman's spine. I would be checking reflexes as best as I could do. And I, you know, examining her muscles, squeezing her muscles, seeing if I could localize this somewhere. But I think the must-not-miss diagnosis right now is is a change in her spine. And I got to say, I'd be really worried about infection. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so you want to bring us through your five key points and like how sure, you Sure, and then we'll come back to her this? at the end. Yeah. I just have to say before we start on this for our audience that there's very little published on this problem. As a matter of fact, if you do an Ovid search for weakness and if you're not just focusing on the neuromuscular problem of true weakness but generalized weakness, there's nothing written other than case reports. Um, so what we're going to put together here is expert opinion, yours and mine, um, and do the best that we can. Let's put expert opinion in quotation marks. Yes, okay. for sure. 
So the first point is it is incredibly uh, ill-defined. And um, you had mentioned, as we talked about this, and I think you're exactly right. The first question is probably just like it is for dizziness is to say, what do you mean you're weak? Um, because I've seen everything from depression to leukemia present as weakness. You know, I've seen polymyositis. I ha have recently seen somebody presented with leukemia who said their legs were weak. So it's really tough. Try to push the patient to describe it. And then you can focus on that more specific specific symptom if you're lucky. So some patients just mean they're tired, in which case you might want to work up fatigue the way we did in our prior podcast. Some patients mean that they're short of breath, actually, um, and then you would obviously be working up dyspnea. Others have psychiatric conditions and are feeling sad, and you need to work on that particular problem. And finally, you, some people actually do mean that they're weak. And then as we'll get to later, it's really about figuring out what the pattern is of that weakness so you can figure out how to process it. I wonder if the most overwhelming patient concerns, complaints, um, which are things like fatigue, dizziness, weakness, are ones where our kind of lay language is very nonspecific and doesn't line up well with our medical differential diagnoses. I think that's right. Um, and so what you have to do as a first step is kind of translate the lay words into, you know, orthostasis <laughs> rather right. than dizziness. Well, it's funny you say that because I remember a lady years ago who said she was weak. And I just thought she was elderly that she meant she was tired or generally weak. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I can't get out of a chair. <laughs> okay, well, she really means she's weak, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 but yeah. that told me a lot more than right. just this term. Right, right. Okay, so uh, I got point one, um, which we need to be specific. We need to actually prove that somebody is weak. Uh, what's your point two? So if you're not able to get anywhere with that and you're not certain what they're talking about, this is a good time for a good review of systems to see if anything else lines up hmm. with what the problem might be. That's a good idea. And you may be able to kind of isolate what's bothering the person and what's making them just feel bad, which maybe is a more specific concern to go after. Okay, uh, number three. Well, I'm going to combine two points together here, which is now is, you know, if you're dealing with weakness, then you need to use your history as point three and your physical exam as point four to try to determine what the cause of the true weakness would be. So historical clues that will be helpful you know, clearly the most important thing if somebody has true neuromuscular weakness is the acuity. You know, somebody who's become acute in the last day or hours is alarming. And you really want to wonder about some serious problems. Stroke, you know, is by far and away number one through five, right? And then there's other uh, less common things like guillain or epidural abscesses and things like that. Um, so that's the most important historical point. Great. Um, and then number four, I'm guessing if three is history, four is going to be physical physical exam. Exactly. Um, the other historical clue, just before we get to physical exam, is there are some clues that you've already mentioned. So if someone says they're approximately weak and they don't come in and say they're approximately weak, they say they can't comb their hair or they have trouble with steps, then you're going to think about a myopathic process. Whereas if they say that they're also numb, then you want to think about nerve involvement. So uh, those are other important historical points. Right. Do you have any other historical points you ask when someone's truly physically weak? Acuity, proximal knot, sensory knot? What else do you think of? Yeah, no, questions? I think that's what I do is that I get to, um, you, you know, 
an organization for the differential that I sort of carry around, which I talk to you about, about sort of where is this, right? And so, you know, I think about muscle weakness, right, which is sometimes associated with muscle pain, sometimes associated with difficulty doing specific things. There are, you know, the neuropathies that cause weakness. And as you said, those people often have, you know, numbness and and we get very good at, I think, picking out those subtle clues. I feel like I'm walking on pillows. I feel right. like there are pads under my feet, you know, or maybe there are paresthesias or this sort of burning type pain. And then I'll, I'll shut up with what I was going to say next, because I think you're probably going to get to it when you talk about physical exam. All right. So on physical exam, I guess the other history point would be urinary retention sure. or fecal problems because that would suggest a spinal lesion. Good, good. On physical exam, you know, a sensory left, there's a bunch of clues, but you need a good physical exam here. This is not one where you do a cursory from the room. Can you move everything, et cetera? Um, but a sensory level would obviously suggest a spinal cord lesion. Hyperreflexia would suggest upper motor neuron lesion, but I, I want to put a word of caution here, which I don't see written about very often, which is when people have acute upper motor neuron lesions, like a stroke, they actually are not hyperreflexic acutely. You tend to see that develop over time, but when you when people come in with acutely with a the stroke, they're often flaccid and they get spastic over time. Yeah, I think that's sort of useless when you're seeing someone with new weakness that you're trying to figure out. Um, atrophy or fasciculations tend to be seen more in lower motor neuron lesions, although long-standing upper motor neuron lesions can cause some atrophy. That's what I was going to suggest: is that really actually just looking at the people's, uh, you know? And for me, it's obviously you're going to look at the person's tongue, but it's also it's often having the person undressed, you know, looking at their thighs because that group of weakness, which is you know terrible things like ALS, is often people who have had actually progressive weakness. And they've just gotten to a point where it's no longer ignorable and they come in. And then often you can really see obvious things on their exam. So you mentioned the tongue. Not everyone might know what you mean. Can you talk about that for a second? So I think fasciculations, which is from denervation, um, is something that you can see fairly easy, easily on the tongue. And I don't know how you describe it. It's almost like a twitching, vibrating of the tongue, right? Exactly. Um, then the pattern of weakness is invaluable. And we, as experienced clinicians, take this for granted. But let's just state the obvious. Unilateral weakness is an upper, is a cortical lesion until proven otherwise, right? Whereas bilateral leg weakness is a spinal lesion until proven otherwise. Because it's very hard to do those sorts of things while the, both legs in the brain without a catastrophic you know, injury of some sort. Right. And the difficult thing there, which I was sort of referring to above, is that you, know, you can have one leg affected by a spinal cord lesion, depending where it is. So that breakdown of um, symmetric versus asymmetric weakness is a pivotal point, which is pretty soft. Okay. Um, cranial nerve findings make me think about different things. So strokes can come with a variety of cranial nerve findings. But then I think also about myasthenia with ptosis. Um, I think about multiple sclerosis, you know, and as I already said, brainstem strokes. What When you see uh, uh, 
you know, um, cranial nerve findings, what else goes through your mind? Right. I think I would, I would highlight all the things you said, which are probably the most common. Um, but then also when you get into malignancies and metastatic disease, which might be, um, meningeal involvement, right. Mm. Where you're, where you're hitting brain stem nerves, or actually this was a resident report case from a few months ago of metastatic prostate cancer, which had skull mats and was knocking off peripheral, sorry, knocking off cranial nerves um, from those skull metastases, which is, I think, probably very rare, but interesting as asymmetric uh, weakness in almost a like mononeuropathy multiplex kind of presentation. Wow. How'd they figure that one out? I figured it out. <laughs> how, how did you figure that I mean, out? I think they, um, I think they were suspicious given the presentation, and then imaged the person with MRI and figured it out. Um, so the, I guarantee you, I did not figure it out. Um, so the last key point: after you've done the history and the physical, and you've looked for it, and this now refers more to people with generalized weakness, where you have no, not much of a clue about what's going on. I often start with basic labs, and those include a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic panel. Um, if I really think there might be muscle weakness, I often do a CK to look for inflammation of the muscles and maybe a sed rate and a CRP. They can help me in two ways, right? If they're very high, they can point to something. And it can also tell me, hey, something's really wrong in the patient where I wasn't certain if there was really, is this just generalized weakness? I'm getting old or is there something more specific going on? Um, a TSH is also often recommended. Terrific, terrific. So getting back to the case, we have this woman who is now on the floor in her hospital room, and I'm sure you have a ton of labs already since she's in the hospital, um, nothing which has pointed your way. I guess the things I would be kind of dying for at this time would would certainly be a CK, as you've mentioned, to see if there's a you know a myositis, you know maybe rhabdo based on her infection. But then I think I'd be so worried about her spine that I'd almost certainly image the spine unless there was something else obvious in the labs or on the exam. Right. So, you know, what happened was we, when I saw this, you know, we also had your concern. Yeah. And we ran her down to the MRI. We called them and said, she has to come down right now. Yeah. And um, they took her in and um, sure enough, she had a big epidural abscess. And she went from the MRI machine to the OR and uh, fortunately recovered. It's worth knowing that you've got about 24 hours of spinal cord compression, but that's really it is what the literature would say. Um, and so fortunately she recovered, but actually, frankly, we were in error about her. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the error that we made. Um, I don't think she really ever had pyelonephritis. I think that she came in with back pain and had some white cells in her urine and was called pylo, and the back pain was always her epidural abscess. I I think the reason I thought that was, in retrospect, what she grew from her blood was staph. Oh, yeah. And that's not a urinary pathogen. So she may have had that seed, her urinary tract, but it was also in her spine. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly, when I was interpreting it, as you said, that oh, this is pylo and I was going to ask you, did she grow gram negatives from her abscess? Um, but certainly, I mean, I think we talked about this a while ago on one of the podcasts, you know, a clue often to endocarditis, right, is seeing staph in the urine. 
And I think you're right. It sounds like maybe primary staphbacteremia uh, infects the spine, and then it just happens to be in the urine Exactly. As well. The other mistake we made, which I'll point out just so other people don't make it, is she came in with pyuria and back pain. And no one, including myself at that time, I'm, I'm happy to say this was a long time ago, made much of the fact that her primary urinary symptom, are you ready? Yeah. Was retention, not yeah. frequency. God, yeah. So in retrospect, this was a classic case of an epidural abscess that yeah. we missed because the much more common consideration of pilo came to mind and nobody said, hey, this doesn't fit, including myself, said, hey, this doesn't fit. She's really got more retention than yeah. anything else. And are you really sure that back pain is CVA tenderness rather than spinal tenderness? Yeah. I think, you know, your dissection of the case afterwards is so key. That's that's one of those people who, you know, even if they're on the neurosurgical service the, you know, the next day, um, that's someone who you should still, you know, round on, right? You should stand outside the room. You should go by the case. It's almost like a M&M at a team level to say, geez, what could we have done better here? What did we miss? Let's make sure, you know, this never happens again. Exactly. Um, just recently, we had, a, we had a person with H flu, H flu, epidural abscess. I've um, never heard of that. Yeah, well, it's never been reported. Huh? Um, and so um, it turned out when we looked into it that they had a complement deficiency. Interesting. But anyway, um, so it's not always clear cut, but she was actually relatively clear cut, and we needed yeah. to learn from that. 20 years ago, you would have written that H flu case up, but now that you're beyond publishing in the literature, you're not going to, right? <laughs> I did ask the residents to write it up. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I think we're up to our fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and random pearls of knowledge. I'm going to guess you don't have a fingerprint. I don't. It'd be like trying to do a fingerprint for all of medicine. There's probably like a hundred actually, because we'd have to list everything for every disease, but I don't have one. Right. Because anything that has a fingerprint that says that you're sick from something could conceivably make you say that you're weak. Exactly. Okay. Common misconceptions. Um, my common misconception is that there's anybody on the planet who likes this complaint. <laughs> Neither the patient nor the doctor likes when they're weak. Okay. And mine is kind of the same and kind of something we've already said. It's that the patient who says that he or she is weak has weakness. Most people who come in saying, Doc, I'm weak, doesn't have weakness. And you need to sort of prove they have weakness to then enter into the differential diagnosis. I uh, got some pet peeves. I do. This is the first time in our podcast I've done this, but I'm going to follow in your footsteps. And my pet peeve is actually with the patients on this one. And um, it's actually whenever they come in and say that they're weak. And it's not really their fault for all the reasons you said. It's sad when someone's weak and it's a problem, but it puts my head in such a spin to try to sort it out that when I hear that, my stomach just sinks as I realize I've got a lot of work to do to try to sort this out. So um, the other real problem with weakness is this. Um, as we age, none of us feel the same way we did before. So, uh, you know, if you look at a five-year-old versus a 20-year-old versus a 40-year-old versus an 80-year-old, everyone notices their change in their function. And so many, many people come in with a little bit more fatigue, a little bit more weakness than they had before. And sorting out what's pathological and not is just a challenge. Some of us get better as we get older. Really? <laughs> okay. Um so my pet peeve, again, kind of reflecting something you said, is just not doing enough of the history or physical exam. And there's just a couple of things, a few things that I always think about. So, you know, asking the patient, you know, can you tell me specifically what muscles are weak? What can you do and what can you not do? You know, what's changed about your function? 
Do your muscles hurt? Is there a temporal nature to the weakness? And that might be, yeah, you know, as I'm active, um, I get weaker, or as I'm active, I get stronger. Or it might be that, boy, I wake up and I'm really sore and weak, and that's an inflammatory arthritis, right? And has nothing to do with weakness. Um, how how did it start? When did it start? You know, often actually having the person's partner talk about what they've been like and how long they've been noticing these changes, and then really examining the muscle groups um, and doing a sensory exam. And this is something, I mean, you know, I, I jokingly always call my neurological exam an internist neurological exam. I recognize that there's a lot that I'm not good at. And so this might be a place that you just call in your neurology colleagues who are going to do a better exam. When I was a medical student and I was on an externship in India, watched a neurologist do a muscle exam on like a two, three-year-old child who had polio, actually. And, you know, was lifting this kid up and having this kid, um, you know, work his muscles against gravity in all different ways. And I looked at this and it was, it was like magical to see. And I was like, well, boy, you know, I wouldn't have any idea how to examine this kid. And so it just shows you that, you know, even on something as basic as a history or physical exam, specialists who work in these fields really, really can add something to the case. How did you happen to see polio as a medical student? I thought by then it was, we had the vaccine worldwide. This was um, was a while ago, right? Right. This was early 90s in an area in uh, northeastern India that they still had polio. Wow. Um, And we were there in kind of early summer, which was a time that they saw cases. And they actually weren't that surprised by it. You know, I would change one of your pet peeves into a pearl. Something you said really struck me. Okay. Which was, you said you would really want to know what how the weakness progressed. What could they do before mm-hmm. and what can they do now and when that happened? That's the same thing I use for dyspnea. So, you know, some people say they're short of breath because um, they were able to run a marathon and now they can't run a mile. Yeah. That's a big problem. Whereas another person might never have been able to run a mile for the last 15 years, yeah. right? Yeah. So get, understanding what their baseline function was and what they can do now in that time course is probably an invaluable way to sort out what's going on with this weakness. So I really like that idea. Good. Uh, you've got a pearl? I do. And I've really said it, so I'm just going to repeat it. You know, you really need to listen to what they're talking about. What do they mean by weakness? How acute is it? Is it current over the last decade, in which case I'm not so worried? Or is it in the last, you know, couple of weeks or months, in which case I'm more worried? Yours? So mine is going to be getting into myopathies. So, you know, I think both of us have gotten across that we're a little bit intimidated um, in a way by weakness. People who have a myopathy, that feels very like medical to me, right? It's got a nice differential. It's usually broken down into inflammatory myopathies, endocrinologic myopathies, electrolyte disturbances, which cause myopathies, metabolic diseases, which we kind of never see because most of those are like inborn errors of metabolism, drugs, toxins, uh, infections, and then rhabdo of sort of all different kinds and a lot of rhabdomyolysis 
fits under those other categories. And I feel like what we see so much is drug and toxins. And so if you have someone who's, you know, presented with weakness, maybe with muscle pain, you get an elevated CK, just look at the drugs they're taking, um, you know, have them bring stuff in, make sure that you're looking at supplements as well, and uh, work to figure it out that way. Um, I had a case long, long ago, which is stuck in my head forever, of a patient who developed um, a myopathy from colchicine use. And I had prescribed the guy colchicine to use you know, as abortive therapy for gout. And it worked terrifically. So he continued taking it forever, you know, and was like on QID colchicine. And it wasn't even on my med list, you know, and it was having him bring in all of his meds. And I was like, oh, you still have the colchicine. How long do you take it? I always take it. Um, And, you know, take him off the colchicine. He started getting better in a couple of days. And by, I think, six weeks out, CK was back to normal and he was fixed. And um, we listed an allergy and I never saw Colchicine again. Do you know if um, for myopathies, uh, whether CK is uh, very sensitive? I mean, I always use it that way, but do you know the data? Yeah, I don't know it. I do not. I will say one thing to make a good that I've always been taught is important to discriminate is between polymyalgia rheumatica and polymyositis. So just to remind the audience, typically polymyositis, although it's inflammatory, presents as weakness, difficulty combing the hair, difficulty climbing stairs, difficulty getting out of a chair. And that's the case where the CK is up because the muscle is being damaged versus polymyalgia rheumatica, which is not an, uh, associated with CK being elevated. No more, it's more pain in the shoulders and in the hips. And the sed rate and the CRP are elevated, but the CPK is normal. Right. CK is certainly not perfectly specific, right? Because we know that there are people who just have elevated CKs. We see that fairly frequently, right? The, but just low range, right? Like low uh, range. mildly elevated. Right, right. Well, we hope you found this episode of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast, useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places, on your mobile device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide for McGraw-Hill. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.